Um, today's reading is Romans chapter 7, verse 7 to 25. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself... In my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Isn't it wonderful to have it so clearly and helpfully read when we've got all of this, what I want to do and don't want to do and what I don't do and I do do and thank you, Yashi. Uh, one of the commentators I read in preparing for this week said that uh, the Apostle Paul must have been a golfer because golfers know all about not doing what you want to do and constantly finding yourself doing what you don't want to do as you slice it once again. Well, friends, I wonder, I wonder if you live the insta-perfect life. 
you know, the kind of life that social media likes to present. Showing everyone life looking buffed and polished and glossy and just right. Uh, I'm sure many of us have seen uh, those, those filters that we can use to improve our photos, uh, give them a different look, something like rose-tinted glasses that uh, take a drab day and make it look sunny. I've recently discovered, actually, that there's a whole industry in tutorials for how you can take your photos of very ordinary, everyday life and make them look kind of insta-perfect. If you pop the camera this way and you pout your lips that way, and if you use a mirror, quite cleverly, to do something with the lighting or whatever, everything looks glamorous. Your holiday looks glamorous. Your takeaway looks glamorous. It turns out even your new sneakers, they can look glamorous too. And for some reason, that matters. I'm not actually on Instagram, though. But I think if you are, or like me, you are not, I think we can actually relate to that same sense of wanting to present life the way that we wish it was rather than the way that it really is. Uh, To use an older saying before the years of Instagram, none of us want to air our dirty laundry. And I think we know that that insta-perfect mindset actually reflects a, a much deeper awareness that we are not the way that we wish we were. We fear the spotlight shining on us too brightly with the concern that people might actually see through the facade that I've put up and actually realise what a, what a mess we really are. As it turns out, Romans chapter 7, it, it touches down on just this kind of mindset. And I think it, it probes three possible solutions for us. You don't see these headings as we make our way through the chapter, but I think as we unpack it, we'll see that actually there's, there's three possible approaches First, you could attempt to bolster the facade. You could just try working even harder at making ourselves to be the better version of ourselves or at least just work really hard to keep up appearances. The second approach that is, it is, it is hinted at in this chapter is to just deny the problem. <laughs> There's nothing to see here, folks. <laughs> I'm a new creation in Christ. Uh, whatever you thought you saw me doing, uh, either I didn't really do it or at least it wasn't actually the renewed part of me that did it. But actually running through this chapter and and the thread that takes us from this chapter into the riches of chapter 8 next week, we we should really be reading them together because it's just one continuous strand of thought is to stand behind Jesus, to recognise that just as we are incapable of dealing with our past sins, so we're also incapable of dealing with our ongoing sin, that I need Jesus and his resources to deliver me from myself every day of my life. So as I said, uh, the Apostle Paul chose not to use these headings when he wrote chapter 7, but I think we will see that he is brutally honest about the disastrous effects of that first strategy. He's really blunt about the futility of the second, but over and over he's hinting at the wonderful hope that we have in Jesus, which is priming us for the chapter to follow that we'll turn to next week. So first, the problem with trying to bolster the facade of your insta-perfect life, which comes to us from verses 7 through 13 of our reading today. See, at first glance, it might not be so obvious how this connects. After all, the Apostle Paul, he began this passage that we're reading today with another one of his probing questions. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? To make sense of that, we need to know something of why he's asking this question. Because he's just spent 
a whole bunch of time in the chapters leading up to this, talking about how the law, God's good law, is incapable of making us right with God. No amount of effort in keeping the law will make us right because we are all flawed and we all fail. We need God's gift of grace. That's a gift of grace that we don't earn through effort. We just receive it by faith, trusting his promises that he's done what's required. And in fact, Paul finished the paragraph before. If you've got a print Bible, I'd encourage you to keep that open. If it's on your device, just, just slide down a couple of, uh, one screen there. Paul finished saying that the law wasn't just unable to save us, it actually traps us in sin. So we need Jesus to set us free from the law, as verse 6 reads, by, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So it's quite a logical question to ask. If the law actually kind of bound us up, left us trapped, if we need to be set free from it, then doesn't that mean that actually the law is part of the problem? That the law itself is bad? Well, certainly not, says Paul. And the important lesson for us today is in understanding the dynamic between law and sin, which is the very reason why trying to improve yourself through just relying on the law and hard work it not only fails, but it ultimately destroys. Now, I don't know if you're like me, and sometimes just seeing things kind of set out in a very simple diagram can help. Because, see, first, Paul shows that the law is good. The law is good because, down the left-hand side of this diagram, it exposes sin. Verse 7, our opening verse, after his question, he continues, I would not have known what sin was, had it not been for the law. For I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had said, sorry, had not said, you shall not covet. Okay, so there's actually a simple concept going on here. We all naturally covet. We are jealous. We are greedy. But we don't actually know what that is until we're told. Don't be greedy. That's the first part of this equation. The role of the law is to expose sin. And any parent of young children knows what this looks like. When you tell a child not to touch the kettle because it's hot, it suddenly becomes the most enticing thing in the kitchen. Or, as our family is working through, when they discover that the F word is out of bounds, whew, suddenly it's being used to great effect, even when they have no idea what it means. And Paul's point about coveting is simple. God's law, and at this point he's quoting from the Ten Commandments, God's law says, you shall not covet. And suddenly we become aware of all of the many and various ways that we want things that we don't have. The law is good because it exposes sin. And as he sums up in verse 13, the law enables sin to be recognised as sin. But that's only half the dynamic of what Paul's pointing out, because just as the law exposes sin, so sin exploits the law. And this is where things get really deadly. As verse 7 and 8 read, to pick that up again, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Sin exploits the law to produce further sin in me. Apologies here, guys. Something's gone wrong with my slides, which means... Cherubim, can you skip us through to the... After this 
exceptionally long reading that seems to have dropped in. Can you take us back to that diagram for us? You see, the law identifies a sinful act, but it is sin that exploits the law for further rebellion. Because the desire to rebel, it's strong. But I think often we do a pretty good job of keeping it hidden. But the law unmasks it. The law reveals that sin's tendency is to rebellion, to push back, like that child in the kitchen who really only wants to touch the kettle because now they know they shouldn't. It's been declared out of bounds. Sin exploits the law to further depths of rebellion. And it's not just kids who show this tendency. Uh, Just this week, I read a very quirky, uh, random article on a mainstream news site, the kind of thing that I wouldn't bother normally, normally bother clicking on, but because I was preparing for this sermon, it, it caught my eye. Um, it was a lifestyle piece about a woman in her 60s who was convinced by her husband to go to a swingers club. Uh, and the appeal for her really kind of just put very bluntly and plainly as if it was a good thing wasn't just the excitement of some new sexual experience later in life but in her words I can't get that feeling of utter depravity out of my mind and she meant that as a good thing and the article unpacked it as as a good thing to be pushing back it felt rebellious it felt wrong it felt liberating It wasn't just the physical experience that was enticing. It was the sense of breaking the rules. And our society has made that a virtue. It wasn't exactly the application that I had in mind, but it certainly caught my eye because it highlighted the point very clearly. The law exposes sin and sin exploits the law, showing itself to be what it really is. And I think this is the futility and the danger of relying on the law to try and change ourselves, to try and restrain our sin, because turning to the law is like pouring, it's pouring petrol on a bonfire. Sure, it will show you where the heat is. <laughs> it'll make that clear. But it'll only serve to fan the flames. And so that we get the point clear in our head, Paul actually, he repeats himself uh, in verse 10 and 11. He said, I found the very commandment that was intended to bring me life, actually brought death, for sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. A sin will do a pretty good job of convincing us that we're doing well on our insta-perfect self-help work. Well done, you're so convincing with your good deeds and your personal restraint. But it's just deception. Because instead of real change, sin is simply seizing the opportunity to harden your heart against the only real obedience that pleases God, the obedience of faith. And in the end, it will put you to death. So Paul's point is, the problem is not with the law. The law is good because it shows us what sin is. The problem is not with the law, but with our sin, which uses what is good to bring about our death. And so there's a warning in that. Trying to change yourself by just doing the right thing will be disastrous. However much you long to present an insta-perfect picture of yourself to the world, don't go attempting to secure those likes by some external appearance of doing the right thing. It's not just futile, it's deadly. All right, so what about the second strategy that we might be inclined to turn to? 
to deny the problem, trying to convince yourself and others that perhaps it's not really that bad. And kind of, there's nothing to see here, folks, as we airbrush away the ugly bits. Or perhaps we turn to a technicality, uh, that now that I'm born again, I can't possibly be caught up in sin. So whatever you think looks like sin in my life, well, it must actually have a legitimate explanation. But Paul's point is that this problem is so deeply entrenched in us that there cannot be any denying. As verse 14 sums up, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. The law is not the problem because we know the law is spiritual. It is from God. It's inspired by the Spirit of God through Moses. It's, it's reiterated by the Spirit through the prophets. It's, it's amplified and taken deep into the heart by the Lord Jesus. And the law had a good spiritual purpose to show humanity how profoundly sinful we are, how incapable of saving ourselves we are, how dependent we are on the Holy God stepping in on our behalf. The law is spiritual. There's no problem with the law. But I am unspiritual. Or we could more literally translate what Paul says there. I am of the flesh. I am of human nature. And Paul uses the term flesh to describe a physical humanity that is caught up in sin. This is what I'm like, he says. I'm fleshly. I share that great human nature inherited from our great, 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 great grandfather, Adam. So the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold as a slave to sin. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you think, how can Paul say that, that we are sold as slaves to sin? Because he's just shared the wonderful news that we are no longer slaves. We're set free, no longer slaves to sin because we're under grace. I think Paul's point is, though, that this will always be our story. This will always have been our story that we were slaves of sin. Even once Jesus has set us free to serve a new master, that remains our story. We bear the scars of our old master. We, we carry the baggage of that old relationship into the new. In some ways, it's, it's a way of saying we have a, we have a foot in two worlds. See, back in chapter 5, Paul contrasted our old life as being in Adam and our new life as being in Christ. And the danger might be that we assume that the total transfer is complete. But the New Testament is consistent in saying that while there is an absolute transfer of status, there is no question that if you are in Christ, you are assured of his love and grace and salvation. And yet there remains an ongoing transformation of experience. Always hard to graphically represent this, but maybe it would look something like this. That we have a new identity as a redeemed Christian in Christ, while still living in the unredeemed body. We are in Christ, but the vestiges of life in Adam remain. So as Yashi so helpfully read for us, there is a difference between what I want to do and what I do between what I know and choose with my mind that is being renewed day by day by the power of the gospel, with what I do, on the other hand, in my flesh, what I desire in my flesh that is awaiting its final redemption 
when Jesus returns. Uh, to use a footy illustration that came up when we were talking about these things in growth group, it's a little like we've changed club. We've gone through the AFL trade season and we're in a new club. We're wearing the new uniform, we're using the new change rooms, we've learnt the new club theme song and we contribute to, uh, we're really keen to contribute to our new club. But in the heat of the contest, when we grab the ball at halfback, instead of going with a new club strategy of the spread out to the wings, well, we're, just, we're running on muscle memory and it's, and it's drilled straight up the centre like we used to do because that was the strategy of the old club. If you like alliteration, you know, just repetition to help remember things. The New Testament teaches us that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin, that he has defeated the power of sin. But we still await his final return to deal with the presence of sin. Penalty and power, they are past tense. But we still await Jesus' final return to deal with the presence of sin. And Paul sums up the principle, the law at work, as he calls it, in verse 21. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Literally, he says, sin is at hand. That's just the same word that he used back in verse 18, that I have the desire to do good. The will to do good is at hand. That's a it's a really profound and actually really helpful description of the reality of our human experience until Jesus returns. The will to do good is right there at hand, but so too is indwelling sin, so deep, so close, so present that you just can't deny it. There is no sugarcoating it. And I think the implications of this are profound and actually just as encouraging as they are confronting. Because it's confronting to call it like it is, to acknowledge that this is what we're like. (laughs) Yet we all know it if we're honest with ourselves. It's the lived experience of anyone who has wrestled with their their unwanted tendencies to lose their temper. The person that, that hates the place that their mind goes when a beautiful person walks past. Or the frustration and the grief of yet another destructive relationship that I've found myself somehow falling into and out of. The list could go on. It's our lived experience. But while it's confronting, it's ultimately encouraging because it's the encouragement to step into the light. To step into the light confident that you are known and loved by the God of the universe. You are known in all your conflicted sinfulness and yet loved. That by God's grace, he has gifted you a new life that doesn't come with some kind of loyalty program where you have to maintain your status credits. (laughs) You see, I find it encouraging that this was the Apostle Paul's experience too. The great evangelist, the theologian, the church planner and pastor, he struggled with sin too. We see it scattered all through his letters. Philippians chapter 4, he gives the image of, of striving to grow more like Jesus. He says, not that I've already obtained all of this knowing Jesus, being like him. Or I've already arrived at the goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And 1 Corinthians 9, writing to yet another church, he uses the image of an athlete training. He says, I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I find it so encouraging to know that Paul 
like every other faithful Christian, has shared my struggle because they share my nature. It's too deep to attempt to deny it. And actually there's great power in facing it head on. As I've been reflecting on this, I think at a practical level, I can think of three alternatives to the danger of denial. And at every point, this should shape our life together as a church. If we want to think through our vision for life together in the year to come, what would it look like for this to be shaping that vision? First of all, to see the encouragement of the fight. That the struggle with sin is actually a sign of life because it's a struggle. It's not just a capitulation. And as we take encouragement in our own eyes, lives, let's look to offer that encouragement to one another too. And the reality of that is that that requires a vulnerability and openness that's really hard to come by out there in the world where you're not sure who you can trust. But church, church should be the safe place to turn off the filters, let each other in so that we can cultivate a respect and a trust where actually we can have that honesty with one another. Uh, Secondly, I think the the great alternative to denial is to ask God to actually grow the fight. Now, there's a dangerous prayer. To say, don't shrink back, but actually push into it. Because it's God's great plan for each of us to make us more like Jesus. And he does it through the refining work of putting sin to death. I want to think through your growth group. Of all of the different things that we might share as prayer points in growth group, what would it look like to put this one to the top of the list? God, grow the fight in me, in us. But third, I think we ought to also look forward to the end of the fight. Because it's not a hopeless cause and it's not a quick fix. The end isn't just around the corner. So we want to say with Paul, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. And I think this is where community really kicks in. To use a military analogy, it is really hard to see the horizon when you're stuck down in the trenches. But what a benefit your overwatch post is. As they see the the bird's eye view of the scenery and the horizon, the destination ahead. To change the metaphor, even the longest night is made more bearable when you've got company to remind you that yes, the morning will come. In community, let's not deny our sinful nature, but as we strive together, let's look forward to the end of the fight and encourage each other in that. And I think we can be confident that it will come because as real as the wrestle with sin is, it's not what defines the Christian. I don't know if you noticed that as it came through in this chapter that we've read, that the Christian has indeed undergone a total transformation of identity. From a rebel against God's purposes to a supporter of the will of God, even when it's hard to bring the old self into line with that will. So even as we continue to do battle with the sinful nature, there's been this fundamental transfer of identity such that our relationship with Jesus is what identifies us. We have this amazing conclusion in verse 17, again in verse 20. If I do what I do not want to do... It's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Now, to be really clear, I think we've seen that is not Paul denying responsibility. He's really raw about his fleshly nature. But it is Paul 
owning his identity in Christ. He's recognised the harsh reality of sin that lies within him, but he knows what defines him. What a wretched man I am, he'll say, but thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the relationship that defines who we really are. That's what he can celebrate with great joy. Even while old habits die hard. So in a world that loves social media and the insta-perfect life that we want to project to everyone else, I think we've got a great warning and deep encouragement. Let's avoid the disaster of just trying to work harder, bolster the facade, do everything I can to present that I've got it all together. Let's steer clear of denial, but rather own together the reality of the ongoing struggle, recognising that that's actually evidence of God's transforming work. And in that place of honest self-assessment, let's be driven to our knees. Let's see the hope that we have of standing behind Jesus, of turning to him to do his transforming work in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. We've not actually tapped into that here. But you might remember that that's exactly where we finished the passage last week, to live and serve in the new way of the Spirit. And that's what we turn to in the coming weeks, with great joy, overwhelming hope. So let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the words of the catchy kids song that we sang uh, this morning, that in your word there's, there's no way to, better way to truly know you. There's also no better way to truly know us. And Father, thank you that in a world that is so conflicted with contrast between how we know ourselves to be and how we want to be and how we want to present ourselves to the world and all the hard work we do to try and maintain appearances and bring about the change that we long to see in our lives. Thank you that you show us what we are really like and what we really need. So, Father, thank you that in your word there is no better way to truly know Jesus and life in him. Father, please grow us as a community where we are not despondent in the struggle with the sin, in, in, the, in the reality of our fleshly nature, but rather we encourage each other in the fight, looking forward to the goal that we might reach out to take hold of Christ, to take hold of that for which he has already taken hold of us. Use us to spur one another on, to point each other to him, to keep looking forward to his completed work in us. And Father, over the coming weeks, we pray that you might continue to encourage us and build us up as we're reminded again and again of the powerful work that you do on us in the present tense, here and now, by your Holy Spirit, in whose power we pray, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.